Welcome to Financially Ever After, where award-winning and nationally recognized financial expert Stacy Francis will bring you savvy tips and words of wisdom on how to secure your financial future before, during, and after divorce. For 30 minutes every other week, you'll hear personal stories from women who have either faced or are currently facing this transition. In addition, you'll also soak up knowledge and inspiration from the industry's top legal, financial, residential, and mental health professionals. And now here's our host, Stacy Francis. It's great to be here, Steve, and we have a fantastic, fantastic guest, Marsha Butler, who is a dear friend of mine and someone that I also really look up to. Her whole life has been driven by creativity, and we're going to find out more about this today. She has been a professional obanist for 25 years until her retirement from music in 2008. Now, during her music career, she performed as a principal oboist and soloist on some of the most renowned and remarkable New York. York as well as international stages with high profile musicians and orchestras such as pianist Andre Watts, composer Keith Jarrett, and some unbelievable first rated artists. However, in 2002, Marsha changed careers and she began her fabulous interior design business, which she brought huge creativity to called Marsha Butler Interior Designs. She served over 100 clients, myself included. That's why my office looks so stunningly beautiful and I get compliments all the time. And she's been in many magazines. But something that I really want to focus on here today at, at Financially Ever After is her most recent memoir called The Skin Above My Knee, published by Little Brown and Company. It was released very recently, February 2017, to unbelievable acclaim, rave reviews, and it continues to really impress the literary literary community. Now, what's important about this is that it's a piece of work that is autobiograph- uh, autobiographical, and it also teaches unbelievable lessons about life, about uh, all we need to know Uh, essentially the skin above our knee. And as far as uh, background, Marsha lives here in New York City. We're lucky to call her uh, one of our wonderful residents and is continuing to do work and is working on her next creative nonfiction book right now. So it's great to have you here, Marsha. Thank you, Stacey. It's a delight to be here. I'm excited to speak with you. Well, it's great. Now, you recently published a memoir, The Skin Above My Knee. And in that, as I read, you talk about your childhood. And I know in reading those pages, um, some of your experiences, tough experiences, actually really affected the choices you made throughout your life. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, your personal story, um, why it inspired you and, and why you do what you do today? Sure, Stacy. Thanks. Um, the book is basically a narrative about my young life and my young coming of age in New York City as a young classical musician. I was an oboist. And um, the fallout really from a profoundly difficult childhood, my mother was very distancing and my father was abusive to um myself and my sister through in the family, which set set up a kind of a template for the men that I chose later in life when I was in college and later on. 
But at the same time, I heard music when I was four years old. And to make a short, a long story short, it literally saved my life. I held on to my talent. I was a very precocious young child and quite talented at what I did. But I understood that music was going to be the way out of this household. So the memoir tracks the narrative of my life, which was challenging and not such a happy story, juxtaposed with this other life where I was succeeding at a top level as an oboist, performing all over the world, performing, you know, um, just I was a very well-known oboist uh, here and in New York City and all over. And the book kind of braids those two stories together in a way that I hope is impactful. And it's really a coming of age. It's a woman's story. It's a story about a young girl and her mother, very much so, and the choices she makes to kind of resolve and work out this difficulty that I grew up with. So that's that's really what the, what the book tells the story of. And you were unbelievably brave in sharing your story. And you know, we talk, you talk a little bit about quite a few traumatic early memories. When you think back to those memories, can you think of your first memory of money? Oh, can I ever? <laughs> it's so interesting because, you know, I'm in the generation after my mother's, I'm 61 years old, where women had no agency over the family finances, essentially. And so the, the, energy in the household at all times was we never had enough money. My father had a job, my mother was a school teacher, but there was always this sort of um, desperation in the air like we are on the we're on the brink. Now to this day I really don't know if that was actually true or not, but it was the energy that my mother put forth. So every pair of shoes was, you know, considered endlessly whether I should be able to get a new pair of shoes. So I was always very cautious about money, very insecure about money. And it really did, you know, it had, uh, it had further implications later on when I was with men. So Mm -hmm. um, yes, definitely. I mean, I can't remember the exact first memory. But throughout my childhood and throughout my high school years, money was, that was a bad topic. Well, it's interesting how for so many, so many of us, our early memories of money imprint on us, how we then think about money going forward. And we bring that to our relationships. And I've talked to many women where they went into a marriage or a a significant relationship, having that money imprint um, often hold them back or so or maybe not allow them to play as much of a role financially as they wanted or maybe make uh, decisions that they wish they didn't have made what about for you 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 alluded a little bit of how that impacted some of your relationships that you later had uh, with partners yes and it's it's interesting because the the political climate at the time coming up out of the 60s, going to college in the 70s in New York City, added a strange juxtaposition. Now, here it was the sexual revolution, right, in the 70s. Um, You know, women were, you know, finding new freedom in their lives to be uh, to be active with men, etc. But at the same time, I felt this kind of, I wanted to be a free person, but 
I gave a lot over to the men that I was with in terms of money. Now, in my early marriages, I was married three times. <laughs> but, um, I, um, but in each time, I really felt like there was this, I wanted to be on my own, but I didn't feel like I could leave the marriage with anything. Do you know what I mean? In other words, if I was a real enlightened, empowered woman, I would ask for nothing. This was the energy from wow. the 70s where we were displaying freedom in all ways. And that included, I'll be with you. And then when I get divorced, I don't want anything, you know, which is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But which I felt like, well, if I'm a really, you know, empowered woman, I don't need that, even though it was my right. Exactly. 50% there. 100%. 100%, 50%. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So it was an odd coming of age time when all the facade of being an empowered woman was there yeah. and everyone was acting it out. But underneath, there was that feeling like, no, you just take what you can and get out and not ask. And so not that's ask. that's what happened. And it's interesting because here you are as an empowered woman on purpose not asking for what you legally are entitled to yes, and how that's actually getting in the front of you truly being an empowered woman of demanding that and saying, you know, legally, this is what I'm entitled to and I deserve financial security and this doesn't make me any less of a person getting what is half of the marital the marital assets. Exactly. Interesting. Yes, and I realize that now, of course, being 62, but back then when I was married in, in my early 20s and then I was married again uh, for six years after that, um, and then my last marriage was 25 years, but so I've had a lot of experience of actually not taking what should have been mine. Um, but women were, you know, and, and there was the other thing that if you if you were too aggressive asking too much you were abrasive you were a pain you were uh not an attractive quality for a woman to have back then and you know you see star you know it just brings to mind like someone like barbara streisand who is a phenomenal artist and was for her whole career considered a pain in, a pain basically in the in the work because she had strong opinions mm -hmm. now if that was a man you know, it, it is what it is, right? It is what it is, and you know, great. They have strong opinions. We expect men to ask what they need for uh, what they need to ask for what they need. We expect men to do that, but for women, if you cross over a line, and it's still true to today, oh, she's too abrasive. She's too pushy. She's too this. She's too that. So I kind of lived through this whole trajectory of um, acting in a free way but not really having full ownership of that when it came to the nuts and bolts of being married and getting divorced mm -hmm. and then having nothing afterwards, like $30. And tell us more about your financial tipping point. Was that the financial tipping point that kind of made, aha, I need to get smart about this stuff? For you, you know, what? where was there a, a moment during the marriage or the divorce where you realized that you needed to ask for what you 
are legally entitled to to what you deserve? Yes. Um, now, in the first marriage, I left with nothing. The second marriage was had sort of the energy, the, the, the reality that neither of us had that much, actually. We were both musicians. The third marriage, which I got divorced two years ago from a 25, long 25-year marriage, and I'm still on very good terms with my ex-husband, that was where we had pensions, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And where we had a house and where we had some assets. And we both had a multi-employer pension plan, which is like New York City teachers, New York yep. City firefighters for the rest of your life. Um, you know, you get a pension for the rest of your life, it, like pensions from the old days. They don't make them anymore that mm-hmm, way. Mm-hmm. However, there was contention in our negotiations about our divorce where Obviously, I owed him money from my pension, and he owed me money from his pension, but he had a bigger pension, so he owed me more money. And he wanted to split that. He kind of wanted to level all that out. And I said, no, because that's not what the law requires. So you understand, it wasn't until two or three years ago that I actually got it together, Stacy, and just said, "Uh uh-uh, no. And he, he pushed back, but of course the law was on my side. Exactly. It is what it is. Correct. Right. And so maybe 30 years ago, I might have just said, well, I guess I'm lucky to get whatever, you know, but it takes a long time. I mean, it's just not easy being a woman in this world even yeah. now. Yeah. Well, you are not a person that I see a whole lot of fear in, in that you live your life boldly and most recently by becoming a internationally recognized author sharing such a a personal story of of you growing up and all the the challenges how has that transition been and how were you feeling about that from going from your design business where you probably had a pretty good idea about you know month to month roughly what financially it's going to look like to a new place where a writer is very different. How has that been for you? Because that's pretty brave. Yes, uh, it has been an incredible transition. And I have I have to admit that I've jumped into the void a little bit about that. So yes, from two, uh, for 15 years, I was an interior designer. I did well as a musician as well. Um, you know, financially, I've always made my own money. I've always been able to support myself. Um, but in interior design, yes, I had a successful career. Then towards the end of my interior design career, I started writing and I happened to write this memoir and it was bought by a big publisher and it was all like, wow, woo woo, you know, this was great. And I realized through this process that actually my creative drive was really in writing at this point. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it had to do with um, agency over fully being fully creative over my voice, which happened to be through words then. In interior design, of course, the energy is much different in that you are actually providing an environment for someone else. So Mm -hmm. they're going to own it at the end of the day, right? And you also have uh, clients have input and such. So it was a great thrill to be able to provide um, functional and beautiful environments for my clients. But once I started writing, I realized that, wow, I'm limited only by my head, my command of the English language, my imagination, my skill, my craft, and so forth. So I realized that I wanted to do that. So last October, and Stacey knows this this very well, 
I decided to stop accepting clients in my interior design firm. Now, I had already sold my book to Little Brown, and my I had my advance, and I was kind of riding along on that. And I had my pension, thank you, from my you know, my divorce and my pension was kind of floating me, but I'm waiting for the next book to be sold, actually, right now. But I decided that I just, I wanted to be purely open to writing and not have a, a very challenging job that I did during the day and then write at night. So I decided to make this leap into the void and I kind of shut down the design business for now and to give myself the opportunity to write full time. So what happened during that time actually, Stacy, is that well, I pared down like crazy. If you, you know, you can only imagine. I stopped buying clothes. I basically didn't go out to dinner very much. I really got back to the old days of the 1980s where I was a musician starting mm-hmm. my career when we didn't go out for dinner, that kind of thing. So and, and how was that for you? It was fine. Honestly, it really was fine because I knew I was driven by something bigger than that. Yeah. I don't need clothes. I'm not really an acquisitive person, even though, ironically, I was a designer, so I was always procuring beautiful items and furniture for clients, and I was able to just turn the spigot off and not go there with myself. So I pared everything down, and I, I've i been to a couple of your seminars, Stacy, and I remember... You know, just how, you know, you advised through the through the, the ones that I attended where you have to really be um, kind of a shark about it. You know, if it's going out, what's coming in? Mm-hmm. And to mm-hmm. be aware always of this balance of, well, look, if I want to buy this, I have to save a certain amount through these months. And then you can go buy it, not put it on a credit card and enjoy it right now because that's the culture that we live in. Mm-hmm. So... For me, I was able to do it, and I did it. Then what happened? That happened in October. So I'm sailing along. I'm kind of floating along on my pension. I finished my novel. It's out for sale now. We're hoping for the best that it gets sold. And then I got a letter from my pension office that our multi-employer pension is going Enron. Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, my God. Right now. And so what's going to happen with your pension? Well, I completely flipped and it was going to go into critical and declining status as of July 1st. They did an audit. Of course, this is a big pension. It's the American Federation of uh, Musicians pension. Not the hugest pension, but it's big. And the audit squeaked by to that it was vested for just slightly over 20 years. So it did not go into that next client. So we have one year now. And uh, several of, uh, obviously the musicians community is galvanizing around this to try to turn this around. We won't be able to turn it 180 degrees, but we'll be able to maybe uh, influence the funds uh, to turn a little bit so that the boat is, you know, not, not totally going sinking. into the, yeah. the iceberg there. So here's all this to say, that that kind of shook my world and I thought well if my pension is decreased and they were anticipating that everyone's everyone who's in pay status will be decreased by two-thirds so I would have one-third of what my pension is now it's like a divorce all over again completely so I personally am activating with a lot of musicians in the New York City area because most of the pension stuff is in LA and 
from film stuff, musicians in film and New York City, because we mm-hmm. have a big freelance and music, music community here, of trying to change this. And that's what we're doing right now. So I'm fighting. And um, this is all to say that I personally was going to float on that pension till the end of my days, plus investments that I had. This is all to say that I want to say to you right now that you must have your own personal investments tight as a drum. Mm-hmm. Even if you have a 401k, even if you have a pension from your employer, even if you're expecting an inheritance, even if any of these other things that are not of your own agency, of your own earning, and that you're saving 10% a year or whatever your percentage is, that must be locked and loaded from a very young age. And that is what I have heard you say, Stacy, mm-hmm. to so many women. And I want to say today that I am actually understanding it really well. I do have a savings. I do have, uh, of course, as you know, I have savings, but I need to really, mm-hmm. I, I should have, nothing is for sure is yeah, what I'm saying. Nothing's for sure. And I, I think that's really important because the women who are listening to this have gone through that same thing of nothing is for sure of going going through a marriage that they thought was forever and finding themselves on the other side looking around and having to being forced to look at all their finances and get them tied as a drum yes and even once you do that surprises happen like this i mean who could have ever imagined that you would lose two-thirds of your pension not your fault and finding yourself in that place of having to make a go of it. I think what's great, what you shared too, is that the ability to actually part out, to scale back and that it didn't kill you. Right. And that if anything, it's given you more options and more flexibility. And as you face this, hopefully will will give you the ability to ride through this as well. Exactly. And, um, you know, to think of it, in January, this pension was vested for 40 years. <laughs> in dis- at, the, at the end of January, we got a letter saying it was going into this next um, uh, level of critical and declining where basically the government takes over yeah. and, and then manipulates it and, and pairs it all down. And so people who are – so that is all to say that, that also that – I believe also that the very act of actually writing this memoir, um, The Skin Above My Knee, gave me, empowered me even more. And in a sort of an amorphous way, it's kind of been informing even what's happening with me financially right now with these challenges that I'm facing, is that when you own your story of your life. Now, I happen to do it in a book, which is public. So there's that whole level mm-hmm. of exposure. But the actual act, I really find on an um, on a really visceral level, the actual act of writing down my story, coming to terms with it, telling truths that I had never told anyone. Mm-hmm. I wrote it. It happened to get published. But it's saying that's who I am. That's who I was, and here I am now. And so there's a power in that that I believe underneath is actually floating me up in these new financial times because it uh, troubles because it's never over. We're always there is nothing set 
and set in stone about our life. Things happen, people die, tragedies happen, financial ruin happens through fault of your no, no fault of your own. And so you've always talked about cutting the pie. You know, you have some here, some here, some here, some here. It makes a whole, but you have don't have all your backs eggs into the inheritance basket. Mm-hmm, we know mm-hmm. how that can go. Maybe all of a sudden the will is red and like you thought you were getting 50%, you're getting 10. You know, that sort of thing. Or just knowing what's going on with your finances front mm-hmm. and center. And so I believe that writing writing the book was just sort of upping the level of kind of, you know, under taking ownership for your life. Yeah. And I certainly made a lot of bad choices through the years, not even finances, but in my personal life. But uh, we live through them and we learn from them. So, And I think what's wonderful that you do, Marsha, that so many women listening to this are going to just feel bolstered by is that you could have easily become a victim and let yourself live as a victim because of the horrific situation that you essentially were cocooned in as you were growing up and beyond and you didn't let that happen and so many women whatever our situation might be whether it's a a divorce a breakup our husband um, passing away whatever it could be sometimes we find ourselves falling into that victim that victim place which it's okay to be there for a moment or two, but you've really shown that you don't live your life there, that you are pulling yourself up and and not letting it define who you are. I'm trying, Stacy. Thank you for saying that. Um, I believe that there are terrible things that happen to people, and it takes work to get through that. But this whole idea, the word that you use, victim, in a way, it 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 is an identity after mm-hmm. a point you know point of time. It's the same way as if you are used to dressing a certain way, you're used to comporting yourself a certain way, and then you have a financial loss, and you have to stop buying clothes. So it feels like you know it's from the deep to the banal. Really, yeah. is not wearing that identity of victim on your shoulders as a cloak, but that. You just simply have to do what you have to do. And if that was for me, I stopped buying clothes. I have enough clothes. You know, that sort of thing. And then also, for me, creativity was really the way that I drove my, I plowed my way, my way out of situations was as long as I had music, I was going to be okay. I was fortunate to have that. But I believe that any woman can find what that is in their life. It might be their children. It might be, um, you know, some other creative act, knitting, even reading books, um, going to the museum, um, walking the streets, caring for others, being empathic to others, being a good listener, a good friend, a good mo- a good mother, and a good sister. Those are all ways also to empower yeah. and to just see yourself in a new light. Mm-hmm. So we're coming up on the end of our half hour. I can't believe it's gone so fast. But what is your financially ever after? A rich guy. No. 
<laughs> just kidding. Um, I just thought I'd throw that in. My financially ever after is looks like this, that I will always live within my means, mm-hmm. no matter what that is. If I happen to sell a book, my next book, and it has a great advance, that will I will live within that mean within that. If it if it happens to be that I don't sell the book and I have to continue to pare down, that's my financially ever after. What is my dream to live a meaningful life to and just to be true to who I think I am and that honestly, for me, does not mean a ton of money. It just means enough money. Mm-hmm. So that, I don't know. I'm sort of a simple girl. You know what? <laughs> that is absolutely beautiful. And Marsha, again, we're so happy to have you here. And just for our listeners, again, please do pick up The Skin Above My Knee. It is a book that will change you. You will read that and give such thanks for your life, but you will also go out of that galvanized to own your own story and Marsha you're definitely a role model for for me and so many of the women who are listening today so I I really want to say thank you for for sharing your story and for taking the time to be here at Financially Ever After. Thank you Stacy. it was a delight I appreciate it. Another great show Stacy. for our listeners why don't you tell them a little bit about Francis Financial and how you interact with clients. Francis Financial is uh, my my dream company, and I started it last 15 years ago and have had the benefit of working with hundreds of women, uh, and our team helps women understand their financial story, where they are today, uh, where they want to go, and those steps that they need to take to, to get there. And I, I have to say, for us women, um, many of us judge ourselves that we should know more, should have made better decisions many times uh, around money. And one of the, the things that I tell people is that if you were walking onto a JetBlue flight and the pilot came out and said, you know what, I'm not feeling well, would you mind filling in and, and flying the airplane for me? Uh, I would look at them with two heads and think, how do you expect that? I've never flown a plane and I've never gone to you know flight school. Well, that's what people are asking often women to do, and that is to essentially fly a plane, but having no education, essentially make decisions about your finances, but not having any education. And so that's what I I hope for financially ever after. Mm -hmm. And, And I hope that Francis Financial is there for those women who who may not have the education, but are smart enough to know that they need to learn. And so how would someone reach out to you? Lots of ways to reach out to us. Um, Our website, www.francisfinancial.com. It's a great resource for gathering knowledge, especially if you're not ready to um, take that first step. Um, If you are ready to take a first step, you can sign up for a second opinion analysis there that's free of charge. You can email me too or call. And you can email me at Stacy, S-T-A-C-Y, at francisfinancial.com or give us a call 212-374-9008. 
And if you don't want to miss an episode of Financially Ever After with Stacy Francis, you can listen to the programs and subscribe on iTunes, TuneIn, and Stitcher Radio, Smart TVs, and DivorceSourceRadio.com.